Hi, I am Jada Siri Ramos. I am the producer of A Public Affair here on WORT. And I have a request. Madison Magazine is running their annual Best of Madison competition. And I need you to go nominate A Public Affair as the best podcast Madison has to offer. All you have to do is go to tinyurl.com slash vote W-O-R-T. Nominations are open all throughout this month, and you can nominate us every single day. Now, the actual voting doesn't take place till June, but if we're not nominated, we can't be voted on. So go nominate us. Again, that's tinyurl.com slash vote W-O-R-T. Thanks so much, and I'm so excited for everyone to know that A Public Affair is the best podcast in Madison. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by. Hello, everybody, and welcome. You are listening right now to A Public Affair here on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. And it's Wednesday, February 15th, and that means you've got me. I'm your host today, Carousel Baird. Really excited to talk today about zoning. There's been a lot of chatter and conversation about um, changes to uh, the zoning ordinances here in Madison. We're going to sort of break down the conversation today. We're going to start um, for the first half of the show talking with Madison City Alder uh, Patrick Heck about the current proposal before um, that's winding its way through committees and will wind up sometime uh, before the Madison City Council to change the definition of family in the Madison Zoning Ordinance. And then for the second half of the show, we're going to talk um, with uh, the senior administrator from the Milwaukee um, Metropolitan Milwaukee Fair Housing Council, my good friend, Corey Schneider Paragini. Um, she's going to come and talk to us about the sort of history of zoning laws and the impact that zoning laws have had on uh, racial segregation in housing uh, worldwide or perhaps not a worldwide a national phenomenon that is absolutely here present in Wisconsin um, so let's get the show started Patrick thank you so much for joining us today Thank you, Carousel, and thanks to Wart for having me. It's great to have you. And again, Patrick um, Patrick Heck, he's an alder with the city of Madison. He represents District 2, um, which is parts of downtown and a little bit of maybe the east side, uh, sort of the downtown east side side of things. But um, Patrick, you are one of the uh, sponsors of the proposed change. Talk to us about what's being proposed. Well, uh, it's... You know, the, the aspect of the changes that are uh, referred to as changing the family definition are what's drawing the most attention, certainly. And essentially what, the, what that aspect of the change, uh, the changes that, that are proposed uh, is, is uh, kind of equalizing the situation between renters and homeowners in uh, uh, the majority of our our more single-family zoned zoning districts. Uh, currently, uh, if you're renting a home, you're only allowed to have two unrelated individuals in that in that home. But if you own the home and you're living in it, then uh, you can have up to unrelated individuals. And uh, what what this aspect of the changes is trying to do is, is as I said, equalize the situation between renters and homeowners. Um, as we all have heard uh, uh, quite a bit that we have a problem with, with, uh, with housing uh, shortage in the city, this won't actually create any new units, uh, but it would allow more renters to live together uh, in the same way that homeowners can. And it's really addressing, I think, a, a, a big inequity in, in the ordinances uh, in, the, in that we treat renters as somehow different, which so we're, we're, that's primarily our motivation. And remind me the numbers again. So under the current zoning laws, if you're in a single family uh, district in the city of Madison, you are only allowed one unrelated 
um, person, I guess, I guess then it could be two people that are unrelated if you're renters, but you can have up to five unrelated if you are owner-occupied? Correct. It's five. I misspoke earlier. I said six, but uh, you're, you're correct. You could have up to five unrelated individuals if you if one of the homeowners is, if a homeowner is living there. And talk to us, you talk about sort of equalizing the inequities between the two. It's not, what was the motivation to try and uh, create sort of an equity between renters and homeowners? Well, I, I think when we first started thinking about it, we were uh, recognizing that defining family in and of itself is very problematic. And, uh, you know, times have certainly changed and uh, there are many different types of non-traditional families. And that's kind of where we, we, we you know, started the conversation with staff and plan commission last year and and alders too that were interested in this including myself and uh i kind of came at it at it initially from that point of view because i was thinking of immigrant families and Mm -hmm. multi-generational families queer families that don't fit anybody's uh you know archaic definition of a family so that's where i was coming at it from and then we got interested in the disparity between renters and homeowners and and uh thought that was a good place to start and uh um that that's how that's how we ended up addressing this aspect first and i want to talk a little bit about the racial aspect and the racial numbers um and i i, I got these numbers uh from a city of Madison report, and then it was also reported in the Cap Times that um, only 15% of black households in Madison are owners versus 25% of white household are homeowners. And that means that homeowners, those households have more flexibility. They can have unrelated guests stay for a while if they have family members or friends that are financially struggling they can invite those individuals to live with them and, and, you know, sort of double up housing. But renters don't have that level of flexibility. And, of course, disproportionately, if you're a renter, the way the financial situation is in America and Madison, Wisconsin is no different, renters are usually disproportionately lower income than homeowners. Otherwise, they would be able to afford a home. Of course, there's lots of reasons why someone doesn't have a home, but one of it is affordability. And so we're leaving the opportunity to double up or have multiple people to help pay the rent in an apartment. Uh, We're leaving that off the table for people that most need it. Exactly. And, and, um, I, I think we can all come up with circumstances where that seems incredibly unfair. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the one one thing that we do know is that the the current family definition, as it as it's called, came to be in our zoning code in 1966, and it's it from the the history of of what we know about that. It seems that it was primarily uh, changed in order to address student rentals. In, in neighborhoods closer to the UW. And, uh, you know, now we realize it was enacted citywide, although I do think it was primarily uh, motivated to, to uh, reduce student rentals. And uh, because it was enacted citywide, all these other uh, negative impacts have, have manifested themselves. And uh, so, so now we're trying to not only address those other impacts that you were mentioning, uh, but but also uh, to equalize the situation for students who are primarily renters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it, it, there's absolutely a racial disparities issue. There's an income and affordability issue. Does this also factor into the housing shortage in that it will allow individuals that can't find housing to double up or multiple individuals looking for housing can now occupy one rental unit instead of two rental units. Most definitely. And, and uh, all of those units that, that we're proposing will still be subject to 
the same regulations about the needed amount of square footage, bedrooms, et cetera, that, that building inspection currently monitors. So there won't be people packing in beyond the capacity of any, of any unit, uh, any home or a unit in a small multi-flat that this would potentially apply to also. Uh, but yeah, the more people who can live safely together, the, the more people who have housing. So mm -hmm. it does have the potential to impact our housing shortage. We're talking right now with Madison City Council Alder Patrick Heck about the proposed change to the definition of family in the City of Madison zoning ordinances. If you'd like to join the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at area code 608-256-2001, extension 9. Jade and Ashley are in the studio. They're ready for your calls. They can patch you through. Uh, onto the air with us or you can pass the message on to them that they can share with us either way that you feel comfortable we'd love to hear from you at area code 608-256-2001 extension 9 so patrick what has been um the response from the community uh at the proposal uh, have you heard from it seems like there's been a lot of sort of Hubbaloo, hubba, what is that word? Hubbabaloo, whatever. It's just sort of, I'm actually really surprised at the amount of, you know, response from the community in opposition to this. Uh, I'd say there ha there's been a lot of input, I'll say that. And <laughs> on both sides of the issue or all okay. sides of the issue, um, we're hearing uh, quite a bit from folks who are in support of these changes and uh, believe that uh, housing is, that the need for housing and the need to treat people equally uh, uh, is, is more important or uh, to address and that perhaps we can address some of the other impacts that this potentially could have. But I think a, a, the majority of our input has probably been in support, but there are a great number of uh, homeowners primarily uh, both in neighborhoods uh, around uh, UW-Madison, as well as further out that are concerned about uh, the, their neighborhoods changing and, and being uh, overrun with students, perhaps closer to the, to the UW, but they're also concerned about uh, changes in their property values, changes in their quality of life, uh, uh, some folks, even in the real estate industry, have have uh, said that they're uh, concerned about uh, even equity concerns from their point of view that maybe property values will raise and that the folks that we're concerned about uh, getting housing for are going to be even less likely to get housing. So the the input has run the gamut. And what what has been some of the response to that? Well, I, I think those of us that are in support of this feel like the, the need for housing in many ways is, is more important than those other concerns. But uh, in, in, in addressing a basic inequity that seems to violate our equal opportunities in ordinance that, that uh, demands that we not discriminate on the basis of student status or age, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and I think, you know, that's our primary motivation. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's uh, not certain at all that this will have any negative in, in impacts. Uh, it's pretty much impossible to forecast the housing market in 10 years, let's say, and, and base our decision on, on such a forecast. The, the economy could change, uh, the, you know, uh, interest rates go up and down. There are all sorts of things about the housing market that, that make it almost impossible to predict. And uh, I, I think those of us that support this feel like addressing the basic inequity in our, in our current ordinance is most important. Uh, we need to listen to the folks who are concerned about the potential negative impacts. Uh, there's even uh, the idea that we should order uh, some studies to be done after a certain amount of time so we can uh, kind of judge how effective this has been. Have there been negative impacts? Um, certainly, as I said at Plan Commission, I'm open to discussing that possibility. Make sure we do follow up on that. But uh, 
generally, I, I think those of us in support of it uh, remain uh, most concerned about the inequities. Well, and maybe part of the response of concerns that people have that there will be, you know, more students occupying housing or um, unsafe neighborhoods. I'm not quite sure, you know, if all of those comments are, are, are founded, but also is part of the answer that, well, those things would not be tolerated under the ordinance and that's not going to change. And perhaps it's going to need some level of then enforcement of the other provisions that are currently the law regulating noise ordinances or, you know, safety in neighborhoods. Sure. I mean, both building inspection and the police department have have been in attendance at, at the public meetings as well as at plan commission the other night. Mm-hmm. And their contention is that we have the tools to address quality of life issues. Uh, let's say a rental house doesn't isn't kept up as well as some neighbor who would like, and they complain. We we have a system for dealing with that. Certainly, also just as an aside, uh, building inspection notes that plenty of homeowners are subject to complaints by their neighbors every year. So it's not just rental properties by any means. And, and, and Madison uh, Police Department also has tools to deal with, let's say, excessive noise if, if folks are worried about uh, student parties in their neighborhood. Uh, currently, uh, we have a, a noise or well, not a, no- a, a chronic nuisance ordinance, and MPD has uh, uh, procedures for visiting homes that are uh, the, the, that the complaints are, are about and uh, I, certainly, uh, I represent, for instance, the Langdon Street area uh, in my Alder district, and certainly okay. there are noise complaints that yeah. come from there. those. Those, by the way, are not single-family homes; those are much larger uh, numbers of students generally. But you know, you can imagine if you lived uh, uh, in, let's say, Greenbush or Vilas, that there are occasionally loud parties, and the police are certainly willing to pay a visit to those locations and and uh, educate or potentially even cite the people that that live there if necessary. And, so uh, we do have the tools to, to deal with those issues. And Patrick, was there, can you tell us about uh, a presentation and comments made by uh, city uh, staff talking about how the current definition of family has been used um, they believe that some complaints have been racially motivated against uh, tenants right now. Certainly the, yeah, the uh, staff showed a map of, of all the complaints that they've received, I think since 2012, they're spread throughout the city, uh, probably a slightly denser uh, uh, collection of complaints in the neighborhoods closer to UW. But uh, it's, it's, it's apparent that uh, people who are somehow unlike the, the people in a neighborhood uh, when they move into a rental uh, unit are subject to complaints more than uh, white people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I can't remember the statistics off the top of my head, but uh, you know the, the, the building inspection, for instance, does not collect data on the the ethnicity of either complainers or residents, but com- the anecdotally building inspection reported that oftentimes the, the complainer will mention the, the uh, race ethnicity of, of the person they're calling about, they'll volunteer it. And anecdotally building inspection says it's not unusual for uh, complainants to be calling about say, some a BIPOC person or immigrants of some sort. It's I really appreciate you bringing this uh, proposal forward. Um, you and many of your colleagues on the, the city council. Can you talk to us in our final moment here with you, Patrick, um, about what happens next? It sounds like so it passed the plan commission unanimously last night. Is that correct? And now tell us what happens next with this proposal. 
yeah, it passed plan commission Monday evening unanimously. Monday. Gotcha. On the on Tuesday, the twenty eighth of February, it will be back at Common Council for what is likely to be its final consideration. Uh, so uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, there could still be, uh, uh, you know, ideas to refer it to another meeting to do more studies but i feel like most of the sponsors of this feel like that we've uh sort of have the data and the information that we need so i'm hoping it moves forward on the 28th and is enacted and is there uh, a way that people can learn more about the proposal and get involved if they go like on the legistar or the, the city website that they can learn more about um and follow the progress of this proposal uh, there is, and I'm I'm looking for the website. The building inspection uh, has a website that is a repository of information okay. with with a lot of things, and and I think probably uh, you could maybe Google family definition uh, city of Madison or building inspection. I'm not sure what will get you there. Uh, I, but there is a great website. You can always find that too via my Alder blog, uh, which uh, you can also find just by Googling me, Patrick Heck, uh, Madison. And uh, there are links to the to all of these materials on my, my weekly Alder updates. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, I really appreciate all your efforts and thank you so much for joining us today, Patrick. It's been great talking. Thanks again for having me. That's Patrick Heck, Madison, City of Madison Alder, uh, talking to us about the proposals in the City of Madison zoning laws to change the definition of family. Um, Thanks again, Patrick. And now we're going to continue our conversation. We have... um, We're going to talk sort of more big picture about the impacts of zoning laws, the history of them, and and how they've impacted communities across America, Wisconsin, no exception. We have Corey Schneider Paragini joining us. She is the Senior Administrator of the Inclusive Inclusive Communities Program at the Metropolitan Milwaukee Fair Housing Council. Hi, Corey. How are you doing? Good. That was a mouthful. Yes, it was. That's a good title. Let me say it again so I get it right. You're the Senior Administrator of the Inclusive Communities Program with the Metropolitan Milwaukee Fair Housing Council. That's good stuff, Carrie. That That is correct. That That's is awesome. All right. So, Corey, first of all, can we sort of talk big picture? Um, have zoning laws played a role in housing segregation in the history of America? Yeah, um, I think zoning has had racial and ethnic and class implications since the beginning of zoning. Um, And, uh, uh, you know, after the Reconstruction, you know, in the late 1800s, post-slavery, you know, there was uh, this white supremacist uh, response that, you know, things were getting too equal. We did, they didn't, the supremacy didn't, couldn't handle um, the opportunities that African-Americans were being given. And there was this backlash. So that's, you know, Jim Crow laws came into effect um, and, you know, other things like that. Uh, But also a lot of African-Americans were violently being driven out of small towns throughout the country through violence. Like, as I said, um, but there were communities that were too large to uh, had too large of a black population to enact to do the violent relocation. So they ended up enacting zoning rules. And the first one, uh, first community to do that was Baltimore, or the first big community to do that was Baltimore in 1910. Um, and I'm just going to read a, a snippet about about Baltimore here from my book, from my book, Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. Um, So the Milton Daschle, the lawyer who drafted Baltimore's ordinance said, quote, ordinarily, the Negro loves to gather to himself for he is very gregarious and sociable in his nature. But those who have risen somewhat above their fellows appear to have an, an, an intense desire to leave them behind, to disown them, as it were, as and get as close to the company of white people as circumstances will permit them. Then he said that 
that segregation ordinance was needed to prevent this. That was not, you know, not going to be had in Baltimore and many, many other cities followed suit, mostly cities kind of in the south, um, northern cities, not so much uh, because. And these proposals were blatant African-Americans, blacks at the time, whatever the word they used, were not allowed to occupy housing in this area. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was that was explicit. Um, 1917, uh, the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, outlawed racial zoning like this, um, struck it down. Um, and around the same time, with the intent of racial segregation, um, some of the intent was just classist, but some of it was blatantly racist. Uh, they started enacting residential zoning that separated multifamily from single family. So um, it was in a risk. So they wrote this overt, these overt laws. The overt laws were struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court. So in response, they wrote these covert laws that didn't say exclude blacks, but had the same impact. Yeah. <laughs> you got mm-hmm. it. You just summarized that really well. Um, uh, so, uh, not only were these laws used to segregate populations by race and ethnicity, but they were also used to kind of destroy and create slums out of black communities. Um, a lot of times, like if a black family, uh, several black families lived in an area, they would get resumed to industrial or another community created a U-shaped industrial district around a black neighborhood to serve as a buffer between a white neighborhood. And you know what? Industrial and neighbor and residential neighborhoods don't always mutually coexist very well. So that, you know, inherently created slum conditions for many, many families. Um, so not only was this there the separation by race, but then there was the kind of destruction of neighborhoods as well. So yeah, uh, yeah. And what does, <laughs> Zoning has an ugly history. I mean, it's it's useful in many ways, but there is an ugly history. And what did these, you know, less blatant, more covert, but still clearly um, racial uh, discrimination and segregation intent? Wh- what did the, what did they say? Um, you know, it was it, it was a, a kind of the birth of what we zoning as we know it today, um, you know, preventing single family and multifamily from being in the same area. Um, there was no longer ra- racial language. It was all language around building size. Um, and uh, now we see things like, uh, you know, your lot has to be no less than three acres or your the home you construct on your lot can't be less than 3,000 square feet or, you know, other other sorts of things that are um, really just manufactured barriers. There, There's not really a health and safety reason behind those kind of zoning codes. And the, the history of zoning, yeah. like the, the, the legitimate history of zoning is to, you know, promote health and safety through different kinds of uses of land and property. Um, so, you know, you don't have a slaughterhouse next to a home or, uh, you know, just all kinds of things that would be really bad next to each other. Multifamily and single family are not. <laughs> there's no, there's no safety <laughs> issue. It's really yeah. just, uh, especially at the time that these laws were coming out, the, the turn of the, uh, the 20th century and the early 1900s, then people with access to money that could build single family houses that could build bigger spaces clearly were not african americans they had they had no access to to money at all and so they used economic and sort of made up reasons to create the segregation absolutely okay yeah af- after you know uh racially restrictive covenants and the federal housing administration's um redlining uh, that allowed mortgages and mortgage backing for white neighborhoods, but not for black neighborhoods. That essentially, uh, those layer of las- that lasagna layer of different kinds of policies at all different sectors, local, federal, um, banking, uh, that just created and cemented in segregation. So then zoning didn't need to be racially explicit anymore because it could be equally as effective in um, separating people 
by using these economic standards. Well, and what's so interesting is, right, they built on top of each other, started with zoning, and then there was the redlining and the, the mortgage industry and the who can, who can sell homes and who can buy homes. But it feels like in the last maybe decade or so, maybe less than that, conversations have taken away, have acknowledged the discriminatory effect of redlining, right? Discriminatory mortgages are no longer allowed, even though it wasn't, it was definitely during my lifetime very recently that we still saw so much discrimination in the mortgage industry and and how um, all that plays out. But there have been at least some sort of acknowledgement and reckoning in these industries, not Right. The intent to find loopholes continues. Welcome to America. Mm-hmm. Um, but there has been acknowledgement of those challenges. But there really I have not heard acknowledgement and conversation about the need to make change in our zoning policies. Yeah, I think. If they were racially ex- still racially explicit, it would be another story. Right. But that's um, the power of covert. <laughs> Exactly. Um, yeah, the, I I have a couple examples of other kinds of zoning issues we've seen kind of locally. We did a deep dive in Waukesha County a number of years ago and found that these are both zoning and land use. They had some policies around, uh, they call them housing mix policies. Uh, New Berlin, Oconomowoc, City of Waukesha all had these and they, were, they wanted to limit the amount of uh, sometimes it was renter housing to owner-occupied housing, and sometimes it was multifamily to single-family housing. But they would say, you know, we want to preserve this mix of housing, 80% single-family to 20% multifamily. And that, you know, again, it's economic uh, and not racial on its face. But when you look at who rents, just as you were saying with Alderman Heck, who rents, um, you see that there can be a disparate impact on a lot of different communities, um, black and brown communities, persons with disabilities, single parents, you know, all different groups that are more likely to rent are being harmed by those kinds of policies. I must say, this has me thinking about a frustration that I have. So I right, I'm a, I'm a civil rights attorney, tenant rights attorney, and I remember I'm flashing back to law school and the conversation of acknowledging the difference between intentional discrimination and, um, oh God, why am I forgetting the words? You just said them, where it's just sort of a disparate impact, where you don't intend for it to be discriminatory, but it has a discriminatory impact. And it's so fascinating, the history of America, that when these laws were passed, it was the intent to have a, a discriminatory impact. But now you would think that most people, they're just used to it. And right, generations have moved on. The, the, the authors of these legislation uh, are no longer alive. It's been a century um, or so. And so all of a sudden something that had a level of intent has now sort of slid into the, oh, it's just sort of a disparate impact. And under American uh, the American judicial system, that's not as bad, and that might not be so easy to challenge in a court of law. <laughs> you are so right. Yeah, um, you can use disparate impact to challenge a, a law or a policy. Um, it's much more onerous on the person bringing that complaint. It requires lots of statistical analyses and uh, looking at demographics, all kinds of uh, research. So it's definitely not... Uh, as slam dunk as that smoking gun or some proving in an intent to discriminate. Um, so yeah, disparate impact is still important in our toolbox, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's still a pretty challenging uphill battle at, from a fair housing standpoint. We're talking right now with Corey Schneider Paragini um, about uh, racial discrimination as an impact of uh zoning laws across Wisconsin and beyond. If you want to join the conversation, we would love to hear from you at area code 608-256-2001, extension 9. Again, Jade and Ashley, they're in the studio. They're ready for your calls. So please uh, feel free to pass on a message to them or they can patch you in right here on the air with us at area code 608-256-2001, extension 9.
Corey, I want to go back a little bit on something we were talking about, which was um, you were mentioning the uh, maybe correct is not the right word, but but the beneficial uh, intent of zoning, which could be right not next to a slaughterhouse, not next to a power plant, not places where you you know think that single family housing should be. I find the irony in what you're saying is that so many times that's where white housing is nowhere near the power plants, nowhere near um, the slaughterhouses, but that the ghettos and where multifamily housing has been zoned has not uh, seemed to be as protected from dangerous uh, neighboring zoning areas. Is that just me thinking that or is, is there some accuracy to that? Oh, I think that's absolutely part of what defines the slums in a lot of communities mm-hmm. is, you know, that proximity to, uh, you know, that that kind of element, the freeway, something that's, you know, ca- has asthma causing um, properties or lots of lead, <laughs> lead mm-hmm. in the pipes, um, all of those things end up having racial and ethnic implications um, in in neighborhoods that have been sort of designed as the, the slum or the, the inner city of a, a community. And, you know, historically, that was what was happening. Like the, the community that has the least amount of power is going to be the community where they put those undesirable uses. Um, Corey, so what have you I, seen in Wisconsin where um, you gave us sort of one example. Are, are there examples of zoning laws throughout Wisconsin that you've seen that have um, racial impact? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple other. Um, one, one thing that we see uh, is that some communities will be like, yay, senior multifamily housing, boo, family multifamily housing. Um, so if it's elderly, that's good. If it's, you know, families, um, it's that's not what uh, folks want even even when it's not even affordable housing even if it's just market rate multifamily so and there are <laughs> they've created a, this loophole to say we're not so bad okay okay we'll do that as long as they're seniors so that these are individuals that right a little slower yeah. moving uh when your concerns um that are based on racial discrimination yeah, and uh, we saw it in Brookfield probably over a decade ago where Alderman said, we will approve your pro- your housing project if you deed restrict it to senior housing in perpetuity. Meaning, I know you intended this to be family ho- family multifamily housing, but we want it to be senior and then we'll approve it. And the, the kind of the distinction between senior and uh, non-senior family housing is that senior housing draws from a much smaller radius. So maybe half mile, a mile from the site where it's being built. Multifamily housing draws from a much larger radius, you know, three miles, five miles. Um, so families, hmm. uh, so if you're already in a white community, predominantly white community, and your radius is you're drawing from is very small, you're able to kind of contain this, uh, maintain this whiteness of your um of a, a proposal being or a, a development being proposed if you're doing family housing it's much more likely to draw from you know in this case of brookfield it's more likely to draw from milwaukee which has a much higher um, population of black latino um, asian folks interesting interesting it's really helpful to hear all of that because so much there is a lot of conversation about senior housing, which is an important thing to have. But sometimes I feel like, yeah, now I'm going to look at it with a different lens. I appreciate you sharing that. Um, Corey, I wanted to talk to you then about what reactions you've heard from people when you go across. I know part of the work that you do and that the uh, Milwaukee Fair Housing Council does is education, is going a uh, out in the community having these conversations with you know neighborhood associations church groups wh- wherever you can you know get to have these conversations what what do people say when you talk to them about this i guess that depends if we were invited to speak <laughs> i think that the crowd that we're speaking to is usually much more amenable to you know 
the information that I, you know, that I'm sharing, like learning about this, this reality and how many of our systems are designed um, to keep these systems in place. Uh, uh, when I, you know, get out of that, you know, kind of uh, speak, preaching to the choir comfort zone, I think there is a lot of pushback. Um, and I, I think that there's a lot of information that could continue to be to be disseminated so that people are aware of the history of this, how it's been used in the past, because I think a lot of the narrative we hear around, like, for instance, affordable housing being built in a predominantly white suburban community is, I worked hard to make it out here and I don't want somebody to just get a, a handout when I worked really hard when they, you know, the their narrative is they work hard and somebody else doesn't, but that's that's a really flawed narrative and that's it's kind of a myth that people have been telling themselves to kind of justify the the uh, residential patterns that we see. Yeah, and I mean, I think what's sort of interesting is there definitely is a, an understanding and a benefit of a doubt uh, afforded to people where... They're, you're talking about changes to their home or changes to their neighborhood, right? Home ownership is the biggest source of, you know, wealth in America. It's how you pass wealth on from generation to generation, how you gain wealth, the value of your house when you bought it versus when you sell it uh, years later. So it because it's so important and so vital, people really hold on to it very tightly and are like, wait, what is that? What are you going to do? This is the most important, you know, financial investment of my life. Not that. Plus also, this is where I sleep every night and, and am every night and look out the window every day. So I understand that people have a strong response, but it's, how do you how do you respond to that when people have this initial reaction of, hold on a second, this is way too important for you to be making a, a decision like this um i i don't know if this applies to the situation in madison right now but so often i hear kind of that that refrain about i don't want my community to become another cabrini green referring to a, the public housing project in chicago i don't want my neighborhood to look like you know, the north side of Milwaukee and, you know, all these kind of um, uh, racial, you know, just slightly veiled racialized comments. Um, and quite honestly, that like, there's a fear there that's seldom realized. I feel like people understand affordable housing now. We're not doing high rises without services. We're not doing those kinds of things anymore. Um, so I feel like there's a lot of fear and almost never is it realized. Um, mm -hmm. I've seen this happen. I've been working at the council 25 years. I've seen this happen 15 times and what people fear is going to happen does not happen. You're sort of based on an outdated idea in their head. Um, we have a caller that wants to join us. Lisa, thanks so much for waiting and, uh, calling in to join us. Do you want to talk a uh, comment about apartments and urban renewal? Yeah, well, not necessarily in the same breath, but uh, okay. yeah, I just, I, I did hear a comment uh, in a community along Lake Michigan recently where that it was clear that some of the people in the, uh, in the audience when they were discussing multifamily housing in the town equated ha apartments with subsidized housing. And I thought maybe there was a code, <laughs> a code word in there somewhere, but it was, it was odd that, 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 that you know, it didn't bode well for, for integration or economic diversity. Um, um, but you know, as far as the uh, housing being an investment, I mean that's that's fine, you know, in terms of interger intergenerational wealth transfers. But I think we've kind of gone overboard. I mean, people mm. in in uh, exclusive neighborhoods don't just invest in housing; they invest in you know huge, expensive mansions, and it's it's not something that we necessarily have to protect. But um, the last thing I was curious about, you know, having ha having relied on zoning and some of these other measures to create what in fact are blighted neighborhoods, it sort of adds insult to injury to come along and say, well, urban renewal is, is necessary and is going to solve the problem. And I just wondered if you had any further thoughts about that. Court, what are your thoughts on sort of the statement of the need for urban renewal? Thanks for your thoughts, Lisa. I appreciate it. I, I guess I'd need a distinction on the, the term urban renewal because I think about the the 
really bad policy from the 1960s where they tore down housing and uh, displaced African-American families. So by urban renewal, are we talking about like community redevelopment? Lisa, are you still there? What are you thinking? Early stages of, of urban renewal may be more, more, more disruptive and, and destructive than, than they are now. I don't claim to have a, a detailed history of the of the program, but I mean, it, it was blight. It was blight that was the problem, and maybe it still is. And it kind of looks like you know the blight was not, if not intentional, at least was sort of a byproduct of a lot of other public policies that that uh, made the neighborhoods poor investments and created created um, unsavory circumstances. Mm-hmm. That then mm-hmm. that then someone can come along and say, well, this neighborhood is blighted, and we have to remove it or renew it or something. So it, yeah. it, uh, there seemed to be a connection there, uh, and 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 not one that we're, we should be real proud of. Yeah. No, thank you, Lisa, for clarifying. And Corey, I th- I think some of it also, listening to Lisa makes me think about, you know, the use of these words and they mean something. Oh, urban renewal, and they put thoughts in your heads and that we're going to do all these different things in the word blight and and sort of affiliating them in the same sentence. Yeah, um, going back to Lisa's question, um, I see as you know somebody trying to create equity in our communities uh racial equity and other equity based on all the protected classes i see our goal is kind of twofold it is how do we make sure opportunity exists in these communities that may be blighted but have historically been disinvested in so we need to focus on that but we also need to focus on making sure there's no barriers to those communities that have historically left people out Mm -hmm. so it's kind of a it's a it's a both and about you know you know reinvesting in those communities to make those livable and uh, successful communities and then making sure that other communities uh exclusivity is (laughs) is dismantled quite honestly and that i don't know if anybody followed the brookfield alderman who said you know around their zoning like we don't we don't need to step down to these other lower communities, Wauwatosa and West Dallas. We are Brookfield. We need to maintain our standard here. Um, and I, like, mm-hmm. okay, that that is absolutely 100% one of the things that I oppose. Right. There, there definitely feels like a lot of dog whistles in a statement like that. But sort of flipping it around then, Corey, are you seeing efforts across the nation to acknowledge the impacts of zoning and to make efforts to change that, like we're seeing here that Alder Heck was talking about that's, that's happening here in Madison. I I am. I am. I'm seeing planners. I, I should say I have an urban planning background. I went to UW-Milwaukee back in the 90s uh, and to get a master's in urban planning. And so I have a lot of planner friends. And I just saw this statement um, uh, about from an urban planner about urban planning, building communities based on equity and inclusion is a planning's duty. Only by dismantling systemic racism can we confront the overlapping social, environmental, health, and economic crises facing cities globally. Planners must marshal all of our power, privilege, resources, and prestige to make ourselves and our broader societies anti-racist. Without doing so, we cannot make meaningful progress as city planners, as citizens, and as human beings. Hmm. <clears throat> so, yeah, I, like I definitely, I, I am definitely impressed with what I've seen from planners lately. Um, the planners in that Brookfield situation I just uh, alluded to, they were very um, strong in their statements about the need for this housing, about the potential violations of fair housing rules and laws. Um, so the planners are, I think they do play a really big role. And I, I see it in this Madison um, family definition issue as well. They're, they're really standing up for what they know creates a, a good, healthy community. And have we seen changes in other cities sort of trying to address this? Yeah. Um, uh, as uh, I think some of the Madison planners have, have stated, uh, Minneapolis, um, 
out in Portland and Seattle, they're they're getting rid of, of single family zoning. Um, they're looking. Everybody's looking at their zoning rules. Mount Pleasant did a complete rehaul of their zoning code for to just get rid of sort of unnecessary uh, manufactured restrictions, just to kind of streamline it, make it more simple. Um, but yeah, it's definitely I'm seeing it more and more uh, around, and I'm hoping to continue to see it. We have a caller coming in. Eileen, we're, we're uh, near the end of the show, but we absolutely want to make sure we have time for you. If you can give us your thoughts uh, succinctly, we would love to hear from you. Sure. Hi, Eileen. Go ahead. Hi. Oh, hi. Um, I'm not sure I'm coming through. No, we but... can hear you perfectly. Okay, great. Well, I just wanted to comment. Um, this is a really complex issue, particularly in the city of Madison, um, I think people need to look at a web page that was put together by some um, of the local, um, some of the near residents of MadisonZoningProposal.com. We are not opposed to support more zoning changes to improve the affordable housing, but we find that there'll be many detrimental effects in these um, near campus, UW campus and Edgewood College. So. I'd like to point people to the MadisonZoningProposal.com and also the history of um, provided by Mayor Paul Soglin that can be found on next door, February 4th. Okay. Thanks for sharing that. And in fact, I looked at that and looked at the Madison Zoning Proposal uh, and the website and some of the thoughts. And you know what's funny is I I lived a block away from Camp Randall Stadium, and it was really uh, sort of Interesting. So I was a part of that neighborhood, a very exclusive neighborhood, difficult to find housing. And um, yeah, that but I appreciate you uh, joining the conversation and sharing that, Eileen. Thanks a lot. Um, So, Corey, in our our final moments here, what are things that people can do to to educate themselves, to be more knowledgeable about the impact of zoning laws uh, when it comes to racial segregation in America? Um. I think you have to continue to think about what the impact of of any kind of zoning definition or or code might be, um, and that's that's kind of hard. Uh, but I I would say any reading that people can continue to do around racial equity will also point to issues around segregation and zoning. Um, I also think that people should tune in to what's going on in their plan commission. I know that's probably not a popular opinion. <laughs> hey, I watch plan commission meetings. We do it in my household. It's on, it's on public uh, television. It's important to see. Yeah, because I, I think there's a lot of important issues that go on in those plan commission meetings. But yeah, I, I totally support that. I, I am a, a planning or a zoning nerd, as I said to you before. And I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not ashamed to say it. <laughs> hey, hey, the, we like sh- zoning nerds on this show. This is these are the conversations we need to have. And it's really important to uh, destigmatize the world for us zoning nerds. Um, so this is fabulous. Thank you so much for talking with us, really helping us understand the history, giving us a little more perspective when we have conversations about zoning. Um, it's been wonderful talking with you again. Uh, Corey Schneider Perigini uh, from the Metropolitan Milwaukee Fair Housing Council. Thanks for joining us, Corey. You're welcome. It was great to be here. And a huge thank you again to um, City of Madison Alder Patrick Heck for joining us for the first half. A big thank you to Jade and Ashley and Mary Jo for uh, assisting today. It's been great talking with everyone. We will see you again next week. Reminder, you are listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I got-